Welcome to episode 7 of the Narrative Wargamer podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I am joined by Chris Grimm. Dude, how are we? Good, how are you? I am absolutely wonderful, thanks mate. I am a line-washing a falchion, <laughs> and it's Thursday night. I'm right there with you, I'm busy washing the outlets of my gorgonaut. We know uh, how to party. We do. We know how to party hard. And as always, before we party hard, uh, we just need to run through some of the admin. So, as always, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and over on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us via email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you would like to join us on a future episode. Finally, if you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. The support from our patrons helps support the cost of producing the show and goes towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Such as, this is actually now the first time I can say we have some of our first Patreon rewards available. So that's a nice new little thing. It's just simple, but um, basically, if you join the Patreon now, you get access to our exclusive uh, Discord server um, and an invite to our exclusive Patreon um, Facebook group chat. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, like you can get a direct line to hassle us directly and ask us all your hobby questions and see all our hobby posts and talk about all the things we've seen on Warmer Community or whatever people want to talk about because. You know, our patrons do have a direct line to us and we'd love to hear from them. So I should have to get on that myself. I gotta say, if you're interested in getting on that, it is only like $2 minimum. Uh, we'll be looking to add some more tiers in the future, but for now, we've got our first set of uh, Patreon rewards. So if it feels like uh, a little bit of progress has been made now. We're getting, getting somewhere with the, <laughs> with the channels, it were. So. The only way is up. Exactly. So looking forward to seeing more people there in the future. Uh, so, if you're interested in any of that at all, links are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the community, because it is it is starting to grow now. Just today, I had someone else join the Facebook group, and uh, they showed me, they were posting straight away about all these conscripts that they were painting. <laughs> Gotta love some conscripts. Send in the next wave of lads. Um, like, I, I asked him what he was working on, he said, oh, I'm just busy painting all these while listening to the podcast, and I was like, good lad. Doing it properly. Although, given the number of conscripts he has, and the fact that this is only episode 7, he might be through all the podcast episodes before he finishes those conscripts. Yes. <laughs> but then he'll but be able to play orcs and make them sweat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whenever you actually end up on numbering orcs, it's always a good time. <laughs> awesome. Right, well, that's what some of our... Uh, community members have been up to us, so uh, just before we jump into our own paint session, Garrison, I'm just going to give everyone a little rundown of what to expect in the show tonight. So, we will be having our regular paint session, Garrison, all the usual stuff we're talking about, and I swear that Gorkonaut is nearly done. If you've been following me on my socials, you will have seen he has been getting there, so yeah. Could tonight be the night? Uh, I don't think it'll be tonight, but he's probably going to be done by the next show. Uh, we will then talk about some of the games we've played. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris, but I've certainly played a really cool and interesting game last weekend. Uh, I've played a couple of games. We'll talk about those in a bit. Awesome. See, so, yeah, actually, in my game, I tried out the um, 
Death from Disguise rules that are in the core rulebook, which I think get overlooked a lot. So um, it's the sort of thing I would have done as a main topic in a podcast episode, but considering yeah. it's literally one page of rules, uh, I don't really think there's enough there to do a full episode on, but there's definitely enough to talk about in the game play using them. So we'll talk about that. So there will be some mention of Death from Disguise. Um, the main topic for the episode, though, is actually going to be our first mission focus. So we've talked previously about some of like the alternate formats of gameplay, like cities in death, or adding extra elements, things like you know the battle zones and so on. Yeah. We're actually going to look at um, a particular Crucible of War mission because I think there are some there are some really clever missions in some of the expansion books, like the Vigilus books in particular. And uh, this one I think is a, one of my favourites, and I'm so looking forward to giving it a try. So that'll be awesome fun to talk about. And then finally, we'll sort of wrap things up with the look at some of the latest news and new releases from Games Workshop. And just in this last week, there's actually been a few more things from these sort of upcoming Psychic Awakening teasers. We've, it was literally yesterday, some news about the next wave of Space Marine supplements dropped. So there's a few nice things to talk about over there. Uh, but yeah, but we'll wait till then because uh, there's some cool stuff to talk about then. So that think just about wraps up the intro anything else from you chris nope again i'm just line washing this falchion trying to <laughs> fight the urge to put it down and go and do anything else but let's crack on and chat some hobby while we hobby yeah so we'll just take a quick break there and then we will be back with our paint station garrisons and we're back guys so paint station garrison you mention a falcon. Falchion, the um, Falchion, Forge World super heavy tank destroyer. Ooh, even bigger. Which one is that? Uh, which is that a it's, or It's Elder the Baneblade oh, variant with right. the twin volcano cannons on the front. <laughs> twin volcano cannons. Because one is not enough. Oh, I saw that on the, um, the Facebook group. I saw it's the white one. Is it, is it a World Eaters one? Yes, like my pre-heresy World Eaters. Yeah. Um, There's nothing I, more World E3 than a large anti-tank thing. I, I, I kind of assumed that was just a, like, repulsor-sized vehicle, because there, there isn't anything for scale in the image. So I didn't realise it's a Baneblade variant. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. Uh, I'll stick a picture in the group today of, A, the work in progress I've done while we've been chatting, and I'll have a Space Marine next to it so you can get a load of it. It's... A big boy. Yeah, I did not quite realise that. So, so that's what you're literally working on right now. Yes. So, uh, what what sort of other uh, like hobby project stuff have you been working on? Well, mate, it may not surprise you that I have been a busy boy. Mm-hmm. So, last time I was on, I mentioned I was painting a commission for a friend who's attending the Horus Heresy Company of Legends event with me in Durham at the end of the month. And for him, since I was last on, I've painted... Five Grave Warden Terminators, six heavy quad mortar batteries, three Deimos Pattern Infernus Predators, three uh, Vindicator Laser Destroyers, and I finished his termite about 20 minutes ago. That's the Adbeck transport, isn't it? Like the, the drill. The drill, yeah. That's yeah. going to be filled with um, flamer wielding, chem throwing, Death Guardy boys. Is it a full termite, or is it a, has it been hacksawed in half to make two termites? 
It's just the it's just the one termite. <laughs> I, like I think there are some brave hobbyists out there that take their forge world models and literally cut them in half so that yeah, you can have it like get it home. It. One leg on the table, the other leg on the saw. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, then for myself, I've gone absolutely head over heels with Aeronautica Imperialis. Oh, you I enjoyed played it. three games, one, two, lost one. Thoroughly enjoyed painting the planes. I did some snazzy stuff with the bases using my airbrush. Uh, and yeah, then I saw that. That's cool. I'm two games into my kill team campaign with my brother, which I think I've been posting links into the group about. Yeah, and that's been proving how's, how's that good fun. Uh, a lot better than I thought it would. Normally, when we play what like one-off kill team games, his chaos kicked me up and down the table. But I've been very fortunate with the missions and have had some very jammy rolls, and I've won both our games thus far. And then the narratives progressed where, for the next mission, instead of it being kill team because of the uh, amount of resources the word bearers have expended in this campaign and lost, we're going to do a full forty k battle of a thousand points, and I'm attacking a fortified palace that the word bearers are bunkered up in. Ooh, you should try so the, um, I don't know how well it would work in a thousand points, but you should have a look at the Stronghold Assault um, rules, because that's something I'm definitely going to talk about in a future episode, because I think they're very cool. I will have a look, but we, we're basically doing it where, because he's basically on the back foot and I've got the lead in the campaign, he can then choose the mission and not tell me what it is until the day. Oh, uh, that's cool, so he can to sort give of him- like... Not tailor his list, I guess, but like he can prepare a list that's anticipating the mission, whereas you're yeah, having so to he's, take more of it. He's on. the defender, so he's going to have the heads up on facilities, assets, what's about, his objective. So yeah, we're playing it that way. So I'm really excited about that. And then I played an 8th edition game of 40k with my friend Dave against his Black Templars with my Gene Steeler cult. And we played the Schism mission from a Vigilus. But we will talk about that later once we've heard about your game. Uh, yes, but I mean, first of all, we'll, <laughs> we'll uh, go my paint station garrison. Like, was yes, that sorry, mate. What, that, um... what have you been painting? All that Deathward Forest terrain's done, isn't it? Well, all the ones are built. Like, Perfect. I've still got more to work on. Uh, but yeah, I actually that's a just... future Tony problem, mate. I won't worry about it now. <laughs> well, probably at the weekend I'll make a start on the next piece. Um, but yeah, like I actually finished the fourth piece of death world scenery last night so i, I posted about it on instagram um, this evening earlier um yeah earlier this evening um but it's the uh, the grapple weed which is a really cool one because it's the one that actually like gets up and chases things around the table yeah and yeah i've got these uh like these four pieces now which i used them in the game i played at the weekend and they basically between them they sort of cover about a quarter of the table i guess so, like, with a little bit of spreading out and craters and stuff, you can sort of have, like, one end of the table look like a, a forested table. Yeah. Uh, which is actually what we did, because we played with, so, like, the forest on one end of the board, like, short table edge. Yeah. Um, the Wall of Martyrs trench line, um, short ways across the table, so it sort of, like, ran from one long table edge to the other. Yep. And then past the trench line, we had the like Sector Frontieris buildings. So I love that terrain kit. It's probably my favourite, the Sector Frontieris stuff that they've done recently. Yeah, it is really good. It's, the only thing to share about it is it doesn't really stack vertically. Like, there's not a, 
a neat way of putting more than one floor to a building. But yeah, I think we've been spoiled with all the Sector Mechanicus and the Imperial Sector stuff because of how modular it is. That is true, but I do think the um, the Sector Frontiers stuff is really nice to say that it's only sort of like three inches tall as opposed to like five inches tall. It, yeah. It's got a nice little bit of a a vertical midpoint, as it were, compared to some of the other terrain. It's taller than things like barricades and like lower walls, but it's not as tall as like your full Sector Imperialis or Mechanicus bits. So yeah. It's really nice. But um, I did actually finish off two the last two pieces of my Frontiers kit, actually, earlier this week. Um, I didn't particularly mention it because it was just a little bit of weathering, but they were basically done anyway. But I do also have the Orc Mech Shop, which is based off that kit yep. that I need to do, so that'll probably be next on the terrain list. Um, but yes, stuff I'm working on right right now, so I'm literally painting the Gorgonaut at the moment. Um, he is so nearly done. I've reached what I found with my orcs is kind of like um, the home straight sort of thing, like the last leg of it, because yep. Everything is painted. I'm just now making the armor plates look orky. So I had a few comments on the uh, Instagram picture I put up uh, saying that it looked like it was painted in the style of an ultramarine. Controversial. Controversial. Which, at the time, because the armor plating was all very neat and clean and edge highlighted, I could see it. Like, I could see how it was a very sort of, like, McCrag-style, <laughs> like, orc walker. Yeah. But that's because it's before it gets all weathered and scratched and dented and all the rest of it and made to look more orky, which is what I'm doing now. So I'm just applying the uh, blue wash to the armor plate to really give it the sort of deep blue that is the base armor plate colour. And then I will apply transfers and then go back and do... Um, like my muddying up wash and then my uh, uh, scraped metal edging on it all, which will then I make love, it all look... I love, love weathering transfers. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? You put them on first, but then you end up weathering them down. Yeah. And they look lovely. I like that too. It's not uh, quite up teeth, but it's uh, it's still very much up there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he's also almost there. I reckon he'll probably be finished over the next week, so he'll... I'm hoping you'll definitely be done by the next episode, um, which, to be honest, is kind of a quicker turnaround than I expected on him. He's, I think it's probably been about six weeks from start to finish, but that's just as and when on evenings at home. Like, yeah, it's always nice when you finish ahead of schedule, though. It's one of those, oh, we might get it at some point, and then, oh, it's all done, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially big models like um, that. But speaking of done, the other thing that I did finish up, uh, I think it was Monday... Or maybe Sunday, I don't know. But like, it was relatively only a couple of days ago that I finished them up. But I finished those three Meganobs that I've been working on basically this month. Yes, they look um, fantastic. I adore those models. Actually, yes, they were done because I used them all painted on Sunday in the game I played. So I think I finished them on Friday when I was at work. So I think that's and they performed brilliantly and won the day and none of them died. <laughs> Obviously. Nah, Obviously, that's nah, how it works with new models. They, they came piling out of a Gorgonaut and murdered some... Uh, Foxwalkers, and then probably got pulled apart by Blue Breeze. <laughs> yeah, they did their best. Yeah, it's they, their first day, let them off. They were kind of just point filling because normally when I field the unit, I usually field it like six or seven strong. 
but I had yeah. um, I had a, a couple of hundred points to fill out to two uh, like to two k, and I thought, well, I'm taking a Gorgonaut anyway. It has the transport capacity to fit just three Meganobs in it, and I've coincidentally just finished painting three Meganobs. So it means like that it's meant to be. Yeah, so it meant that all the Meganobs I fielded for that game were actually painted, which is a first, even though there's only three of them. Um, but yeah, I'm so glad they're done that, because they just took a lot of time. And not that yeah. I didn't enjoy any of it, but I think I kind of underestimated how long they're going to take to paint because <laughs> they're all built out of Gaskell Fracker. So they yeah. are big models. Um, I had a few. Uh, requests on uh, Instagram again for like scale comparison shots of them because I'd taken like pictures of painting them and all the stages I was doing, but yeah, you couldn't. You only saw them again next to each other, so I stood them next to like some of my regular rocks and they dwarfed them. <laughs> um, I say I kind of found that actually painting them was more akin to painting things like um, Pearl Guard Sentinels or like Castle and Robots. And stuff like that. Yeah, they're like, like uh, mini dreadnoughts, aren't they? Basically. Yes, they're just only a little bit smaller than a dreadnought. So actually, I'm kind of painting three vehicles at once rather than just three infantry models. Yeah. So just the area to cover was what well, took the time, but I'm really pleased with them. Uh, which means, I'm, including the war boss himself, I've now got four of my seven mega armored orcs painted. So at some point, I will do leave a three. You are over halfway there. Yeah, which is the key thing. And speaking of over halfway there, I wanted to take a little break from doing so much armor plating because I've been doing a lot of that with my orcs recently. So uh, I just decided to take the next step on the green wire, uh, the green wire, <laughs> the green tide. So you know, always there's always some more orc boys to do. So I'm currently now just working on my next mob of ten orc boys and uh, the orc war boss from the Black Reach box set. So just the sort of like shooter and claw boss. Um, God, I remember. I remember being sat in the corner of my games workshop when that box came out, swapping my Space Marines for another lad's orcs. So yeah. probably like thirteen, fourteen at the time. And I love that model. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a while ago. I've had that model ages. I think I ended up with about three different copies of it eventually over time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm finally getting around to getting it painted because what I find is when I'm batch painting ten orcs, I also tend to have one character model set to the side. Because ninety percent, yeah. Because ninety percent of his paint scheme is going to be the same as the boys I'm painting. You know, yep. skin, leather, metal, whatever. You know, there isn't a ton of things that are going to be a world of difference to what I'm actually currently batch painting. Yeah. Um, so he, so I'm, I don't even really need him for an army list anytime soon. But I just want to see him painted. It's not going to take long to do, and he's just painting alongside the art boys and. Like when I'm waiting for washers to dry on their skin, I can do a bit on his, you know, boss bowl. Whenever I'm waiting for the the metal to dry on them, I'll probably already done the metal on him, so then I can do highlighting or edging, you know, just little extra bits to make him look a bit nicer because he's a character model. Very, very productive. It's a good way of doing it. Yeah, so rather than just sitting and waiting for a stage to be done, I'll do a different stage on the character that's by the side. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm currently working on, say like, uh, all my lunch times at work and stuff. Gorkonaut is the big thing at home, but he's nearly done, so I'm going to really make um, a push with some of the scenery pieces. So the, um, 
the planet strike creators and they're the next thing that are going to get sort of properly some attention because they shouldn't take too long to paint um, I've got the laser burn one mostly done already so that's nice looking forward to doing a nice big glowing like light effect on that winner um, ooh, and then I did actually manage to pick up a, a salvage project from eBay the other day awesome um, I managed to pick up the old Temple of Skulls which is a lovely kit. It's is that the big hill one with the big altery thing in the middle of it? Yes, it's the actual Quite. like forty k chaos temple because it's the it's got the eye of Horus sculpted into it. Which one? I don't think I've seen that one. Um, so it's or at least I've drank and slept a lot since I've last seen it. Probably, uh, it's a large footprint. Like you could stand a knight on it. Because there's like the old fantasy one with the spiky columns and the skull set into it. Yes, that I think that is the one that uh, you're, the one you're thinking of. I think is this one, but it's actually a yeah. 40k one. But awesome. a lot of people think of it as a fantasy piece. But yeah, that's going to be really. Nice. I've, I've painted one before in the past, but sadly I don't have it anymore. And I want. I've one. got one that my um, an old mate gave to me that just needs the grass taken off and a little touch up here and there. It's on the one day pile well this one thankfully it's it, 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 it's kind of been so under appreciated that it's almost not been worked on properly if that makes sense so it's actually going yeah. to be quite easy to strip it back um, the sort of thing where like, you know, the original owners just started painting straight onto the bare plastic sort of thing <laughs> so it's not even, even, even primed so I'm going to be able to salvage that, and it'll look quite nice awesome. since it's holding. Look forward to seeing how it turns out. So lovely, like yeah. I say, it's got an enormous footprint, and it's uh, it looks great on a painted table. Yeah, and it's nice because it actually blocks line of sight for infantry. Um, yeah. Things like the Gorkonaut will be able to see over it, but things like my Meganobs wouldn't. So it's, again, it's an interesting sort of height to it. Tall enough, but without being too tall. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll, that'll look really nice in the middle of the Death World table. So it'll be all like um, jungle, forest, and ruins, and then in the middle of it, there's this old collapsed chaos temple, which I think will make for a really nice board. Mega. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much everything that I am and have been working on. And I say at some point I'll I'll start the the next forest piece because still got more kits to put together for that, but it's gonna be cool and I'm gonna enjoy it. Um. So yeah, I think that's about everything for the paint station garrison. Uh, hopefully, the Gorkonaut will not be here next time. That That is my key takeaway. Everything else has kind of been rounded off and finished and I'm moving on to new things. Gorkonaut, so nearly there. You will be done within the week. Mega. I think, for, well, this time next week I'll be getting ready to go to Company of Legends. So I'll have this Falchion painted, three Rhinos and four Veterans for myself. And then for the rest of the Death Guard, I've got the 12 crew to go with the guns. And then five flamers, five rocket launchers, and a handful of, like, five or... Yeah, five characters. Sounds a lot. Doesn't sound like a lot of time to do it, but do you know what? I'm confident. <laughs> to be honest, I'm confident you can get anything done. I, I'm still impressed by how quickly you get from things. As long as there's tea in the world, I will be fine. <laughs> Perfect. Right, well, in that case then, I think we will take another quick break and then we will come back with a more detailed look at the games we've been playing. 
Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back, guys. So, we just talked briefly, well, not even briefly, really, we just talked about all the things that we've been working on in Defense Station Garrison, so let's talk about what we've been playing instead. So, we just heard a fair bit from me there, so Chris, what have you been playing since the last show? Uh, so I'll talk about my 8th edition Vigilist game I played with my boy Dave. So it was 2,000 points of Black Templars, uh, absolutely beautifully painted by him. I'll see if I can upload some of my pictures onto the group. Very talented painter, he's been in several White Dwarfs and Visions and things like that, so uh, always a pleasure to play. Was this the he... was this a game played at Warmer World? Yes, it was. Yeah, I thought it was from the pictures. Yeah, again, nice. the pros have been 20 minutes down the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am one lucky boy. Uh, so it was my Gene Steeler Court of my Pauper Princes versus his uh, Templars. We're both very casual gamers. We'll turn up and call and just have that discussion of what do you want to play. Uh, I've not played this, so let's give that a go. And he'd not played any Vigilance missions, so we rolled for Crucible and we got Schism. Yeah, it's a Now, for, for those of you who don't know, Schism is a wonderful, fun little narrative game where the board's divided up into six deployment zones of 18 inches by 18 inches off the top of... Not 18 inches, by, 9 inches by 9 inches, uh, I believe, off the top of my head. It's and basically like the realm of battle tiles, but like a smaller square within yeah, it, isn't it? Yeah, shrunk down a bit so that yeah. you've got some no man's land. Yeah. And standard shenanigans beforehand, you roll off to see who deploys first, and you pick a tile unit by unit to deploy in, but once you've deployed a unit in one of those tiles, it's then locked in for yours. So all the six tiles were divided by two, and we each had our own little triangle. So I had bottom left corner, top center, bottom right corner. He had top right corner, middle, bottom, top left corner. Oh, see, we- that, that, that almost seems like a little bit of a... Not a cop-out, but like... I imagine this scenario plays best when you've perhaps got like a zigzag deployment, as it were. Yeah. But I guess it just wasn't to be because that's almost kind of like a, an odd corner deployment. But you're deploying like an um, an inverse L, and within like three little groups, aren't you? Rather than one collective deployment zone. Yeah, exactly. And uh, obviously, with the Gene Steeler Court doing what they do best, I was throwing blips down everywhere. And he was doing his best to try and think what was going where. Yeah, oh yeah, so, of course, because yeah, you you just have blips, and not only are you in like three different mini deployment zones, you're also filling those deployment zones just with blips. Yeah, and I was I think the space between them was eight nine inches something like that. So if he deployed stuff on the edges of his deployment, and I was across the way or next to, he was in trouble. Which unfortunately is exactly what happened. <laughs> So I revealed my blips, and I had some Lehman Rust battle tanks at the back of the board, watching his bikes and his Sikarin relic. And then I had a big ten-man blob of aberrants walking around up to his land raider, wanting to knock on the door and see who's in. <laughs> and the game 
went to the full five turns, and the victory conditions were... Uh, he was the defender. We decided narratively it makes sense for the Black Templars to be the defender. And one of the cool things about the mission is there's a little paragraph that says this mission plays best if both armies are from the same faction. So Imperium, Chaos, so on and so yeah. forth. Well, so, the original scenario is meant to represent the uh, conflict between the Death Guard and the Purged that happens in uh, the... not Mortwald, um, one of the other Hive Sprawls. Uh, the, I think it's like the... Uh, Dominaria, Hive Sprawl, something like that. But basically, yeah, the it's meant to be a schism, literally. So the scenario plays out um, well if you're using two of the same forces. Think like um, Word Bearers and Ultramarines at Calf. Yes. That sort of scenario. It's like it's the two Space Marine forces, but then they turn on each other for whatever narrative reason. Um, well, this is it, because my Gene Steeler Court had a few guard units in there. We, we played the narrative of that they just fought off a Chaos incursion and then the Black Templars clearly couldn't sniff very well because all of a sudden all these four-armed Gribblies jump out of the walls and get the jump on them. And uh, by turn two, he was surrounded on almost every front by Neophytes, Acolytes, Gene Stealers, Aberrants, Atalan Jackals. That's a good thing he brought his own Neophytes in. Yes, indeed. And it was a really, really good game. Uh, my Goliath Rock Grinder one shot at a venerable dreadnought with its mining laser after hitting on fives with three shots ah. which was I was wincing at that one it's not very often I get a roll that good uh, I, I, did a, I did a similar thing with my zap gun in the game I played but I'll, I'll mention that later love zap guns so the game went for the full five turns uh, Dave was an absolute champ he had some atrocious rolls and I had some atrociously good rolls and we had a really good time of it. It ended with me finishing off his what his rhino. It's the last thing he had on the table on turn five. So I went to the full turns. I always like games that go all the way to the end. And then we had calzones for lunch and a good natter. And uh, I would thoroughly recommend trying the mission out if you're into your uh, unusual deployment zones and your turn two, everything's getting charged. What the hell do I do? Well... I think it's a good mission to try out, say, the next time you end up playing a game where like, you want to use your Space Wolves, but your mate wants to use his Imperial Guard, or whatever like that, you know, and you just feel like, hmm, should I, should I not just bring my Tau or my Orcs instead so that the Space Wolves have got something to actually fight? So, no, yeah. play a Schism. You know, feel free to play as that Imperial Commander who's you know, besmirched the honour of the uh, Space Wolf Captain, and now he's uh, demanding... His honour be seated. Exactly. Tell the story you want to tell any games. Um, so yeah, like Schism is a good one to try out. Uh, definitely recommend it. I've not had a chance to play it myself, but I'm looking forward to when I do. Like I think that'd be a good one to play between Orc clans. Like if I play, yeah. Oh god, yeah, like, definitely. Just like all the orcs have been hanging out in the war bosses, like uh, shanty town or whatever. Yeah. And then suddenly someone throws a squig at someone else, and it all kicks off. The banter squigs start flying. <laughs> banter squigs. <laughs> yeah, that sounds mega. So yes, I uh, thoroughly recommend the mission. Good time of day, but I'll probably play them again in the near future. Uh, then some games of Aeronautica Imperialis, which I've spoke about already. Thoroughly good fun. I look forward to incorporating those into my 40k games, maybe even in the campaign I'm playing. Uh, which, and, which side have you been playing as? Uh, Imperial Navy. You've been playing Imperial Navy. There's something about the Marauder Destroyers that makes me 
it reminds me of being when the Phantom Menace came out and my mum bought me a cross-sections book of all the tanks and vehicles in Star Wars. And I spent hours and hours and hours looking at that. And I don't know why, but the Marauder Destroyers took me right back to then. <laughs> but nice. I am, I've nearly painted all my Imperial Navy, so I am going to maybe do a mass orc fleet of uh, Daka Jets in the near future. Yeah, get a Death Squadron in there. Goth ones. I've got Death Squadron, actually. It's still sealed. I must crack that open at some point and have a read. It's good. Wonderful. Uh, that was my games, pal. How about yourself? Well, it's funny that you mention Aeronautica because whilst I have not a chance to pick up Aeronautica myself, I thought it would be very appropriate to try playing a 40k game uh, with a whole bunch of flyers. So um, I have a local friend that I play with and um, he plays with Death Guard. But he actually has a pair of the Chaos Hellblades so they're sort of like interceptor-type chaos fighters. Oh, the Hell Talons. Is the Hell Talons, is that what they're called? I think yeah. they're Hell Talons. Or not either. I'm listening to a Double Eagle by Dan Abnett and they mentioned in there. I think they are Hell Talons. Yeah, it's probably that then. Um, and I have a um, a full air wing of alt flyers. So, like, I've got a Daka jet, a Bernard Bomber, and a Wasbomb Blaster jet. So I thought it'd be fun to play a game where we both brought all our flyers, so there'd actually be five aircraft on the board. That sounds amazing. It, yeah, and, and we're only totaling about 450 points in flyers per side. Yeah. So it's still like a decent 40k game going on underneath them, but they was very much sort of like a, a centrepiece of the battle. So I thought, all right, well, how do we craft a scenario that's going to sort of emphasize that and you know really make it um a set piece battle with, with all these aircraft so i thought right well we'll try out the death in the skies rules that are in the back of the uh, call rule book which i still find it surprising how few people actually realize they're even there but they yeah. are and they're awesome it's one page of rules and it basically just expands on how units with the aircraft keyword or flyer battlefield role, how they interact in a game of 40k um, and it adds more of a like dogfighting mechanic to it, which is really cool so I'll just give a, a quick rundown now, basically if you're going to play a game with um, Death from the Skies it adds in an extra phase into the game, it adds the dogfighting phase, so the game plays out as movement, dogfighting psychic shooting combat, as normal so you get a whole phase basically dedicated to your aircraft. Yes. Now, your aircraft behave exactly like normal in the shooting phase. They even get to shoot. It's just that they can't target other aircraft in the shooting phase. They're only allowed to target enemy aircraft during the dogfighting phase. That's good. So that's like they're basically their strafing run where they get to take some yes. shots at ground units. Yeah, exactly that. So in the shooting phase, they can still fire at ground targets. Which is nice because it means you actually get to fire twice per turn, kind of, with your yep. flyers. Um, so, so that's the key thing is that in the shooting phase, they're no different, exactly like normal 40k, except to catch you with flyers. In the dogfighting phase, that's when you get to shoot at enemy flyers. Now, the key thing with dogfighting is that it actually reintroduces vehicle facings. Ah, okay. So your aircraft do have front, side, and rear arcs. 
and wherever the weaponry is mounted on the vehicle is where it actually is mounted. So 90% of flyers' weapons are considered to be in their front arc. Um, some flyers have a tail or rear-mounted gun. Some of the off ones have that. Um, yep. So they can only fire to the rear. Front-facing ones can only fire to the front. And um, turret weapons can have, like, 360. So, for example, the Storm Raven, the little turret on the top that's got, like, the twin melters or last cannons or plasmas. That's yeah, it's a like turret. a dorsal turret kind of thing. Yeah, that would have 360 line of sight. All its nice. weapons are considered to be front-facing, even like its hurricanes. Yeah. So, facing is actually important, which means that movement is important with your aircraft. So when you've got these aircraft that move like you know, 20 to 60 inches, and they can do a 90-degree pivot and stuff, but that's actually yep. very important for being able to see other enemy aircraft. I was going to say, does it alter the movement for the planes at all, or is it just as they're no. in the rules? So if they're supersonic, they've got to go X and then turn X. No changes there. So that's exactly the same. So your movement yep. of your aircraft is the same. You're shooting at everything else and ground targets is the same. It's just that when it comes to shooting over aircraft, you have to actually abide by your vision arcs. And um, sorry, is that in the shooting phase or is that in the aircraft phase as well? Uh, is so the shooting phase an effective where they can shoot anything on the ground that's... They can shoot anything on the ground like normal in shooting phase. The facing is only in the dogfighting phase. Wicked. Um, that's good though that sounds like great fun it's uh, yeah. making me well, to get some flyers because I don't have any fly Do I- I've got a storm fan gunship for the space walls but other than that oh and a storm hot talon for the um, carcaridons so mm-hmm. the only extra thing it adds then is you actually get a hit modifier based on the facing that you're targeting yep. of the enemy aircraft so if you're um, if you're firing at the front arc of an enemy aircraft so you're flying head on towards each other you get plus one to hit if you're firing side-on a passing aircraft, so you're firing at their side, no modifier. And if you're tailing an enemy aircraft, so you're actually firing at their rear arc, you get plus two to your hit rolls. Nice. So, again, facing is really important because it affects how likely you are to the enemy uh, aircraft. Um, then, you know, you wound and resolve damage and all the rest of it, exactly like normal like shooting phase. The only thing that's different is that in dogfighting both players actually activate their flyers and you alternate activations. So think like activating fighting units in the combat phase. Yep. So in my turn, I activate my first flyer to shoot with. Yep. Then you actually get to activate one of your flyers to shoot at, at me in my turn. That's exactly how um, aeronautic plays. You do it on a plane-by-plane activation, so you've really got yeah. to decide which plane's going to shoot first. Sounds good. I like the sounds of that. Yeah, so, uh, and that's basically it. There are um, a pair of stratagems that are available. It's like universal stratagems available to you if you're playing with Death in the Skies. Um, One is 1CP evasive maneuvers, which means that your aircraft, uh, when it's targeted by an enemy attack, uh, enemy aircraft during the dogfighting phase, you pay 1CP. You can re-roll all your saving throws for your aircraft for the rest of the phase. Nice. Um, but you're at a minus one to hit for the rest of the turn. So yep. if you've yet to activate in dogfighting, you'll be a minus one to hit to shoot that like when you're attacking. 
And if you're then activating in your following shooting phase, you'll be minus one to hit the ground targets as well because you were too busy doing evasive maneuvers. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to keep that aircraft alive, it's going to be worth it. Oh, yeah. Um, the second part is that uh, Death from the Skies includes the leaving combat airspace rule, which for starters, I think this should just be a rule in standard 40k. And I pretty much always offer to play this rule whenever me or an opponent has any aircraft. And it basically just means that you're allowed to leave the board. So if you leave the board, you're not automatically destroyed. Yeah. Um, and then you go into reserves. Yeah, that does make sense. As opposed to it goes off the board, it's dead. Yeah. So at the end of your following movement phase, you roll dice on a 3+. Plus, you re-enter the, uh, the battlefield and you place your aircraft um, up to... You place it on any table edge and then you make up to a 6-inch move with it. So basically, you know, you're within 6 inches of the table edge. Basically because the base is 6 inches wide, typically. <laughs> or long, rather. Um... And there is a stratagem in Death from the Skies where you can spend one, two, or three CP on it called um, Refuel, Rearm, Repair. If you spend one CP, uh, you, you, you use it when your aircraft leaves combat airspace. If you spend one CP, it will automatically arrive in your next turn. You don't need to roll. If you spend two, it will automatically arrive and it will return with a full stock of any um, limited use weaponry. So like oh, so there's limited, there's limited ammunition as well? Yes. Uh, no, not normally, but say, like my burner bomber carries two burner bombs, so it's got two yeah. weapons that are one use only, so it can drop oh, one okay. bomb oh, yeah, of turn, course, but it only has two for the entire game. Yeah, so then it can go back and you spend the stratagem to make it come back with, re basically rearmed. Yeah, with two more bombs. Nice. So That's you good. can come back with more bombs, and if you spend the full three CP... It returns automatically, it's rearmed, and it gets back to you free wounds. Awesome. And that's it. That's that's Death from the Skies. So it's basically just at the dogfighting phase, um, you, you're you not allowed to shoot enemy aircraft in anything other than the dogfighting phase, and um, you get modifiers to hit aircraft based on facings, and your weapons are restricted to facings, and then a pair of, two, uh, a pair of stratagems. But it's really cool. So we decided we were going to play with those rules. Um, and we were going to play an open war mission. Um, so we on the day, we generated an open war mission. And we ended up with... So we ended up with a deployment map where the you're deploying on the short table edges. But yep. one player is deploying has two deployment zones, which are both short table edges, and one player deploys in a strip in the centre of the table, but, like, short ways. So from yeah. long table edge to long table edge. Um, so we ended up deploying with the Death Guard in the centre, which is really cool, because how is it board up? They are actually deploying in the trench line I mentioned. Yep. So we had trench line in the middle, forest on one side, um, like Imperial Frontier Town on the other. So there's Death Guard roll hold up in the trench lines. And the orcs were deployed in the jungle forest and the frontier town, and they were going to be slamming in. Um, we drew multiple paths to victory as our objective, which actually meant we drew and played with two objectives that could be achieved. Nice. So the first one nice was yeah. So the first one was pillage and burn. So both players deploy three objective markers in their deployment zones. 
and um, when you capture, when you hold an enemy objective, you burn it and you destroy it, and it's the first yep. player to destroy all three of your opponent's objective markers wins. So all three Death Guard ones were deployed in the trench lines along the center of the board, and the Orcs had two in the jungle and one in the frontier town. Yep. Then the second objective we had was the Comet. Jeff oh, played... I love that objective. Yes, love it, love it, so love it. that's where at the end of the third, no, sorry, at the start of the third battle round, uh, you basically randomly determine either a table quarter or the dead centre of the table, um, and the comet objective marker lands there, and then at the end of the fifth battle round, whoever controls the comet wins the game. What was, so, the, what was the objective then? What fell from the skies? Uh... Actually, I used the Planet Strike crater that is literally the four meteorites that crashed down to the Earth. Oh, um, it's so good. But I've painted them up as Blackstone meteorites. Yep. So that's why they're valuable, because they're Blackstone. Yep, they're like Archaeotech, invaluable resource. Yeah. So the Death Guard are trying to claim uh, the Blackstone, and the Orc, uh, the orc Weird Boy has uh, you know, foreseen the powerful... Uh, Orky rocks gifted to them from the gods that they need to claim. He wants to know what they taste like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we could win either by burning all three rejection markers or by claiming the comet at the end of the fifth round. And then the last thing that we also played is we, we did play the battle zone. We played with the dust storm battle zone. Yeah. So I deliberately picked this one because it actually has an impact on flyers. So I thought it would be cool to influence the aircraft of the game. So we'd be having all this dogfighting on the edge of a, uh, a dust storm over this death world frontier. It was going to be a while, whilst we're trying to clear the skies in order to claim this valuable thing that's going to fall from the skies. Sounds like absolute lunacy, and I would love to play it. It was brilliant. So I, the dust storm basically is this thing where um, it starts 12 inches in from a table edge, which you randomly determine it at the start of the first battle round. And it actually ended up being the short table edge that was the frontier town. Yep. So basically half my orc force, including two of my aircraft, were in the storm at the start of the game. Convenient. Well, you say that. <laughs> <laughs> basically at the start of each of your turns, uh, every unit in the storm you roll a dice for, and a four plus it's this immortal wound. Um, if it's a flyer that is in the storm... You don't roll the dice, it just automatically suffers D3 mortal wounds. Because it Makes is sense. not hazardous a good conditions. place. Yeah, it is a very hazardous place for an aircraft. Um, but the advantage is that if you're in the storm, you always count as in cover, which meant even my aircraft counts in cover, because they were in the storm. Because um, they're hiding. And uh, you are at minus one to be hit and minus one to shoot, like to hit. Um, with yeah. range attacks because you're trying to fire through the storm so I actually had half my force was in cover and at minus one to be hit because he was in the cover of the storm and then I had a force that was in the uh, def uh, the forest so it sounds like a lot but it all played very smoothly because once you've determined what the objectives are and the deployment and you've set up the armies that's half the complicated stuff done then it's yeah. just this is where we are here's the storm, it can potentially um, blow further into the board or recede back, and we just have an extra phase that we're going to put the dogfighting phase in. Cool. And it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. 
So just to give you a quick little rundown of how the game went. So in, in the first turn, um, basically uh, there were some nerglings that had infiltrated up really close to um, my objective in the frontier town. So I actually Bloody had to Bloody nerglings. Yeah. Absolute nuisance. Because all you have to do is capture an objective to then immediately destroy it. I didn't want to just give up on the objectives really easily, so I had to have a bunch of boys hop out of this truck and basically guard this objective in the storm, which is very yep. unusual for my orcs, but they're in cover and they're might as well to be hit, so I've actually been stood in the open. They're not the easy not the easiest things to shift. So uh, they basically warded off these nerglings for the first round. Um and we started exchanging all the dogfighting which basically resulted in a bunch of wounds being knocked off um, everyone's aircraft. But nothing fell out of the sky straight away. But it was a lot of fun trading fire between them all and using evasive manoeuvres and all sorts. It's really cool. Um, and I mentioned earlier, it was the first time ever that I'd fired my zap gun from my battle wagon and I fired it at a plague burst crawler. And I rolled for the strength and I rolled a double six. Oh! <laughs> which means that if that attack hits... Rather than rolling to wound, they just automatically inflict three mortal wounds on the target. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, it hit. Like, even hitting on fives, I didn't even need the death skull reroll. It just slammed straight into this plague burst crawler. Three mortal wounds, and he failed all three of his um, uh, disgusting, disgusting resilience. resilience. Yeah, so I was like, ha! Three mortal wounds straight away. Fear the zap cannon. <laughs> the ogre just looks at his zap cannon and goes, whoa! It's like, that works well. Awesome. And then in turn two, before I got to fire again, some Blight Lord Terminators deep shook in and melted gunned it to death. <laughs> Standard. Yeah. He learned his lesson. Yeah. Like, they blew that up and I was like, oh, that was gutting. It was on like 15 wounds and it was just gone. And I was like, oh, well, that wasn't nice. And then the ridiculous thing was that these Blight Lords, they then succeeded at their charge, which meant they piled into like, the 15 Orc boys that had been dropped out of this truck. And... Those plague flails are no joke. They're just absolutely ridiculous, aren't they? Yeah. With Shock Assault, this like one Terminator with plague flails putting out like four D3 attacks. Those plague flails being damaged too, but then carrying the damage over just means that like those four D4 attacks damage two against orcs and six up save. Yeah, they, they cut through quite a few orcs, and that was only the first Terminator. Yeah. So that was a like a strong counter-offensive from him. He basically wiped out the mob of boys um, and just left the like, the weird boy and the mega-armored boss that were with them. So, like, that was the threat. Um, but they did get swamped in my following turn by a, a truck of fresh boys that rolled up and piled out and piled into them. So between the uh, the weird boy and the, the fresh 12 orc boys, they, they cut them all down to just the last Terminator, who was, of course, the damn Black Lord of the flail. Yep. And he managed to clock my weird boy on the head <laughs> before, <laughs> before, he, before he eventually got uh, pulled down. Um, well, yeah, so like turn two was when the first Orc Flyer went down. So one of the um, Hell Talons shot down my Wasbomb Blaster Jet. Um, but again, that was in the dogfighting phase when it shot it down, which was really cool. It, like, it had been tailing it and it was blasting its auto cannons into its rear. And uh, shot it out of the sky, and it was yeah awesome. Um, but in response, I had been a very, very, very cunning war boss, and I had taken my Gorkonot full of Megan and I'd put it on the teleporter. 
So it deep shook in, um, and it deep shook in behind the cover of the storm because it had extended out. So it was like eighteen inches into the table. So I had this the Gorgonaut deep struck in. Yeah, the Gorgonaut teleported. Oh, that's that's very cheeky. Oh, it was when it was going to attempt to charge on his demon prince, which was his warlord. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, it failed the charge. Ooh. Oh dear. So he just had to settle for firing a million bullets into Poxwalkers <laughs> for the turn. But what was really cool was that because it had actually deep shook into the storm, one, it counted as in cover, so my Gorkonaut actually had a tuple save. Um, and it was at minus one to be hit. So it was quite happy to sort of like drop in there and. and the enormous proceed. blue death bot of doom sneakily sneaking through the storm. Oh, yeah. I mean, on his a, big metal tippy toes. Hey, it is a very big and blustersome storm. So I'm yes. sure he could hide behind it. Uh, but yeah, so that was cool. Uh, it'd be nice if you made the charge, but just appearing in the storm and firing bullets and rockets and all sorts out of it was hilarious. Um, and then turn three, I actually lost a second hawk fire. The burner bomber got shut down after dropping off its bombs, which did nothing. Despite my efforts to drop them on terminators and things, I could not roll four pluses on my bomb rolls. So that was a shame. Um, but that turn, the Gorknot did manage to crash into his Demon Prince and his Sorcerer. And uh, it took him two rounds, but he did pick him up and squish him eventually. Excellent. But the Gorknot was very, very badly injured as a result. It, like, it, it only had like three wounds left, so it was practically waddling about at that point. Yeah. Um, but I was fine, because in the following turn, it, it waddled off into some uh, plague marines and minced them up but they managed to get enough wounds back that they actually killed it and then it decided to go nuclear hooray <laughs> yeah. as any good gorkonaut should do yeah well the trouble was right, it robbed me of burning up his second objective marker because I'd in the first turn I'd managed to charge unit what boys into his uh, pox walkers so I had mobbed and burnt up a first objective marker but he'd done the same to me in the in the uh, jungle side. I'd basically had to forfeit one objective. So he just yep. rolled up to it with his rhino full of plague marines, hopped out, and they burned it up. So we would burn one objective each. But I was going to burn his second objective up at the end of the turn with my weird boy, because he was the only one stood on it. Unfortunately, he was in the blast radius of the Gorkonaut. So when it went oh. up, like it's like a 2d6 radius and d6 mortal wounds. It basically cleared that half of the field at that point because this was like turn four when it actually went up. Did um, he get very warm very quickly, the weird boy? Oh, very, very quickly. Uh, there was only one player green left standing, only a couple of pox walkers. Uh, the sorcerer was dead, demon prince were dead, the mega knobs were dead, the, most of the player greens were dead, like, everything was just dead. Was... Sounds like the MVP goes to the uh, the big mech, mate. Sounds like he, he did a good job. <laughs> yeah. It's just a shame that blowing up when he did cost me the ability to wreck that second objective, which basically yeah. meant that I had no momentum then to try and go for the uh, pillage and burn victory condition, so instead I had to look at trying to seize the comet. Which, yeah, keep your eyes on the skies. Yeah, which at the end of turn three, oh sorry, the start of turn three, uh, we rolled for it and it arrived in the jungle. So it crash-landed right next to the Plague Marines um, that were hunkering down because the war boss and his uh, remaining orc boys was then 
piling over the uh, Blight Lord Terminators and heading for these Plague Marines. Um, so they probably sort of minced them. Uh, but in the following turn, like a Plague Burst Crawler rocked up and uh, basically gunned down the boys, so the only thing left really was my war boss. Um, but at this point, I think I'd taken out a one of the two Hell Talons. The last one was only on like one or two wounds. But all my flyers have been gunned down as well now. So like we'd been yeah. playing for like four or five turns at this point, these aircraft all dogfighting, and there was only one aircraft sort of left limply <laughs> sailing through the skies. Because he when I blew up his first one, he used his death guard shot to auto explode it. Yep. <laughs> as they do. Um but it was really cool. Uh, ultimately, it, the last turn of the game was turn five because whilst my war boss was threatening to claim the Conit, um, my opponent ended up like charging a Rhino into him just to keep him preoccupied so he didn't get the extra movement to get towards the Comet, uh, which meant that the Comet was unclaimed unless I could roll a five plus advance with my old truck. And I probably rolled a six. So Hooray! <laughs> the, uh, the old driver uh, puts his foot right down. Oh yeah, basically this uh, it was the Luther Goliath that basically just uh, rocked up and um, pitched the uh, the Blackstone Comets into the back cargo hold before running off with it. Goliath, a nice, solid, firm, hard-working proletariat vehicle, I like that. Yeah, so uh, it, it, if New Rivers had had it that turn, I imagine the Warboss would have flipped this Rhino and then probably going to claim it himself anyway the following turn, but it was yeah. nice that actually the truck got there Um the turn beforehand and picked it up at the end of turn five, so that was nice. So what a lad. Yeah, that that was that was it. And in the end there was very little left from either force. It was one flyer limply circling the skies whilst avoiding this dust storm. And a massive crater where the Gorkonor had been. But uh Zag Dreg was there to uh load the Blackstone up into the back of his truck before running off into it into the distance with it. So it was a win for the boys in the end. Excellent. But it was a really fun game. And uh, the, the dogfighting was really fun. Like It, it really added... Um, it made the aircraft feel like aircraft, not just vehicles. Like not just a model on the table yeah. in a game of 40k. Yeah, it sort of added the yeah, second sound like to it. Fun. So that's definitely worth having a, a look at. So it's literally one-page rules in back of the world works. So I suggest going and have a look at that. Um, so that was a little bit of a, <laughs> a lengthy game played, but I think it was, it was worth highlighting the, uh, Death from the Skies stuff for that. So I think it was worth deep diving. On yeah. That. Good to hear about, um, sadly being a Gene Steeler Court player predominantly, I don't get access to many aircraft. I can pinch the guard Valkyries, but that would be one detachment. So that'd be all I can take. But then again, in a narrative game, I don't suppose it really matters how, how many aircraft do you want to take, does it? Not really. For what attachments you run? Not as such. I mean, like I still prefer to sort of play with what you would consider like the match play staples, so things like you know, rule of three, battleforge attachments. So like yeah. I, I had a um, an air wing for that game. Um, the hell talons were part of the battalion for the death guard. Um, and I, I wish I had a few more CP donated, but I need to get two more transports sorted before I can start properly running double battalion with my orcs. Yeah. But I'll get there. I'm going to loot some probably ad mech vehicles, I think, next. Um, but yeah, so from one 
very custom sort of narrative scenario to a predetermined one from Vigilus. I think we will take a quick break and then take a look at the running battle scenario in our spotlight topic. So we'll be back in a minute, guys. And we're back, guys. So, this is our spotlight topic. No, no, no. This is our spotlight topic for the show. Um, and it is our first mission focus. So, what we're actually going to be looking at today is one of the Crucible of War missions from Vigilist Defiant. Uh, so, this is the running battle scenario. And I think this is probably one of the coolest cinematic sort of like missions there is out there. But here's one of these ones where you kind of have to pre-plan the types of army lists you're going to bring to it for it to work properly. It does sort of like preface that in the, uh, the army's bit of the mission. So uh, just to give you a sense of what this is, I'm just going to read the sort of little fluff bit at the start of the mission. So, when two fully mechanised armies battle each other, a high-speed and furious chase often ensues as one force seeks to desperately outrun the other. While vehicles equipped for a fast pursuit will storm ahead of the pack, those slow to get off the mark will be left behind in their dust. So, it's basically a chase scene, but, like, with armies. Um, God, what was it? Crash Bandicoot, where you've got to escape the border and go as fast as you can. <laughs> well, kind of, but whilst in a go-kart. Yes, whilst in a go-kart, and instead of a boulder, it's whatever your opponent's throwing at you. In my case, it would be, like, a gazillion poxwalkers. Don't even if it's orcs, it might be boulders. Yeah, exactly. Especially if it's snake bites. Um, but yeah, so it doesn't have to be literally mechanised armies, but it wants to be fast-moving armies. So you're looking at things like maybe all jump pack blood angels, um, like all cavalry space wolves, um, chimera mounted up guard, whatever. Like You're probably going to be looking at stuff that moves fast because uh, the nature of the game basically is that you're meant to be playing over a uh, like rolling board of terrain, so the whole sort of board shifts as you play because it's meant to represent your forces travelling a greater distance than it's just represented by a single 6x4 table. It's a really good idea. It's really clever. There's a very similar sort of like scenario in the Speed Freaks board game called Race yeah. of Horizon, but they basically applied that to a 40k game, and it's brilliant. So... Just to give you a little rundown, uh, the sort of armies that the scenario is intended for. So each player musters an army from their collection. A player can include any models in their army, but this mission works especially well if players contain few, if any, units with a move characteristic of less than 10 inches. So you're kind of looking for stuff that roughly has 10 inch or, 10 or more inch move. So yeah, if you run your, run your whole Terminator list, it's probably not going to last long. Well, unless you deep strike at one end of the table. Yeah. And then, why are we, what are we doing here, Ron? <laughs> yeah. Um, or you look to sort of like mount everything up in something that can keep it moving, if it itself yeah. is not. Which I actually think, actually think is uh, quite a sensible tactic for the defender, as we'll find out. Um, yeah, I look. I mean, all my, my guard list, uh, every infantry squad has a chimera, so I'm instantly thinking this mission would be great for that. Yeah, like all my orcs, I play mechanised orcs, like I don't like the mobs of 30 boys on foot. I yeah. run truck boys, so like, and said I'd have six trucks full of twelve or boys or whatever, rather than six mobs of thirty. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah. Uh, so additionally, if a player's army is battleforged, they will be able to use the appropriate stratagems included in this mission. So once armies have been chosen, the players decide who is the attacker and who is the defender. The player whose army has the higher power level should be the defender, and their opponent should be the attacker, which is unusual based on the way around. But defender has the highest, yeah. uh, the bigger army, attacker has the smaller. Otherwise, players roll off to the side. Um, but as always, whenever I read any of these scenarios and I reference power level, I just interchangeably also think of that's points. Like, there's no yeah. reason why any of these things could just be like play two K army, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Work out victory points based on. Uh, points rather than power level or whatever. Yeah, okay. So, have that conversation with your opponent and you know decide between you what you want to do. Yeah. Uh, so the battlefield. You create a battlefield using uh, the deployment map below and set up terrain. Craters, debris, boulders, dotted around represent the wasteland the battle is taking part in. This mission works especially well if all terrain pieces are freestanding, movable, or not fixed to the table. That is key. So this is the kind yeah. of thing where having modular terrain or everything just like area terrain bases is good. It's not going to be so great to play it, say, on a big sculpted board at Warhammer World or at your local store or something. You actually kind of want a board where all your terrain is loose and can be picked up and stored away because it's going to be moving. Yeah, most people have got, if they've got a home set, they've got the gaming mats and all the scattered terrain, so I think it's quite applicable to people who play at home. Yeah, which is why I think this is actually a really cool mission you can play, but you can also play it quite easily without having to have lots of extra fancy things to make it work. Um... So, the actual deployment map. So you you deploy using the short table edges, but it's a bit like the game I played at the weekend where the attacker's deployment zone is on one short table edge, and on the map that you're given, that is on the western battlefield edge. So looking at your standard deployment map is kind of like the left-hand short table edge. Yeah. They have a 12-inch deployment. Cool. Then... There's an 18-inch no-man's land down the length of the table from their deployment zone to the defender's deployment zone. The defender then gets a 12-inch strip from that point onwards. So they get like a 12-inch deep deployment zone. But it's like running down the middle of the table or, yeah, it's, it's just slightly off to one side of the middle of the table. Yep. And then the far short table edge is considered the eastern battlefield edge. And then noticeably, both the long table edges are considered the attacker's battlefield edge because that's where the reserves come in in this mission. Yep. So they come in from the long table edges. So, after the has been set up, the defender first sets up their units wholly within their deployment zone. Cool, so defender deploys everything first. The attacker then sets up as many of their units as they wish wholly within their deployment zone. Uh, any remaining units from the attacker's army are set up in reserve and will arrive during the battle as below. Now, again, I prefer to sort of play where you match play framework, so you'd still sort of stick to about half your army minimum has to be on the table in your deployment edge, is what I do. Plus, I think that makes it feel like there is at least a chasing force. It's not the kind of scenario that I think null deploying would be very fun in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the attack against the first turn in this scenario. But although it's not strictly written in, I also don't often have a problem suggesting including a CZ initiative role if you think it's in, it's going to be interesting if it switches it up. Like, yeah, actually, yeah. if the defender were to, on occasion, seize on this mission, getting that little bit of a head start could be quite interesting. But whether you want to include a seize or not is up to you. So, uh, the attacker's reinforcements. Starting from the second battle round, at the end of their movement phase, 
the attacker makes a reserve roll for each of their units in reserve. On a 4+, plus, the unit arrives and can be set up anywhere on the battlefield that is wholly within 6 inches of one of the attacker's battlefield edges and more than 9 inches from enemy models. So this is a scenario where you can kind of keep anything in reserve, so things that don't typically have an ability to do so. You could have your guard in Chimeras if you wanted in reserve. Yeah. You could have your shock jump dragsters or your boom deck snazz wagons or whatever. Like you can hold anything back, but it's um, using like the four plus reserve rolls from turn three onwards, uh, turn two onwards even. Now, the key feature of the game, rolling terrain. This is the thing that makes this scenario. So at the start of each battle round after the first, every model and every terrain piece is moved six inches in a straight line directly towards the western battlefield edge. They are, uh, if any models or terrain pieces are moved within one inches of the western battlefield edge, they are removed from the battle. Any such models they are, are lost too, in yeah, time. They, they basically, they've fallen so far behind that they've either been captured and killed or they've fallen so far behind that they're no longer really chasing the enemy, that the enemy's kind of gotten away from them. Yep. Bye, Felicia. Resume. Yeah. Any such models are treated as having been destroyed for all rules purposes. Any terrain pieces that have been removed can then be placed within six inches of the eastern battlefield edge by the attacker, which is kind of important. Models then act normally in the following turns. So, again, another little addendum I have with that is, whilst technically it says if terrain leaves, you then place it on the opposite end, rather than just using the same terrain, there's no reason why if you've got a collection of terrain that's larger than one table's worth. You could just yeah. get right for every piece that does leave, put a new piece on. But it yeah, otherwise it'd be like um, on episode of Scooby-Doo where it's just the same background going backwards <laughs> yeah. and forwards. Yeah, it's like the Flintst- Flintstones background. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and the fact that everything moves back six inches is why it's advised that everything has a movement characteristic of at least ten because you've got to think you've got to be moving over six inches to actually be moving across the physical 6x4 table. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to end up just spinning your feet and staying in the same place or be getting actually dragged back towards the western edge. So, like, the attacker has a 12-inch deployment off the western edge, but everything in his army is going to immediately step back 6 inches. So yeah. anything that is only 6 inches from his table edge has to move, otherwise it's going to die. Anything that's in the 6 to 12 has got to move... Well, whatever it is moving is how far it's actually going to be from the table edge by the end of the turn. <laughs> and then equally, the defender is going to start getting dragged closer and closer towards the attacker's deployment zone unless they're actively sprinting forwards. So when you so can, you really are forced to get a move on. Yeah. Like when you look at... Um, you can look at like Eldar Wave Serpents and stuff, which are what probably... I they move like 16 or something at full stats. Something silly, yeah. But actually, when you consider they're going to be getting moved back six inches, that's only like 10 inches they're actually moving across the table. So even if they're the defender, they're still going to take them like a good three turns to actually kind of like run out of table. And that's if they're just going full pelt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then do you want to run? Do you want to spend some of that energy shooting stuff? Because I take it the uh, there's still a war going on. It's not yeah, catch so, the pigeon, is it? No. Well, in a way, it kind of is, to be honest, because that's the interesting thing. So... The game uses uh, the random battle length, so you're looking at three to, uh, five to seven turns, um, depending on um, what you roll. 
But the victory condition is really interesting because it's it's basically victory points, but it's not who kills the most, it's whether or not the attacker kills enough of the defender. Ah, okay. So at the end of the battle, add up the total power rating or, you know, points, equivalents, whatever points, you Points, yeah, say, whichever way you're doing it. Of units from the defender's army that was destroyed. If the total is less than a third of the defender's value, the defender wins a major victory. If the total is greater than half the defender's army, uh, the attacker wins a major victory. Any other result is a minor. So basically, it comes down to if the attacker can destroy 50% or more of the defender's force, the attacker wins. If they destroy less than half of the, attack, uh, the defender's force, the defender wins. Yeah. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is the defender doesn't have to kill anything in the opponent's army to win. Nope. So their entire focus is on staying alive. So and going fast. Yeah, going fast, staying alive, breaking line of sight. Like, it doesn't matter how killy or deadly their units are because killing things isn't the objective. Now, obviously, blunting your opponent's assault is, is going to help you survive. So destroying your opponent's things is going to reduce the power they can bring to bear on you. So yeah. there, is, there is inherently, you know, still a purpose to harming the opposing army. But actually, you don't have to. And I think it's really interesting that the defender could actually win the scenario without killing a single thing. In theory. In theory. And that's yeah, why it's, uh... it's really key that any new terrain that's added to the board is added by the attacker. Because... Because they can then almost put up those, you know, literal speed bumps. Yeah, literal try speed bumps. And... You know, oh, look, suddenly the Sector Imperialis building is down on the table. Oh, you're going to have to run around that because you can't just get out of the way. Uh, I'm going to have my re- I'm gonna have my reinforcements appear on this flank alongside this building. So now suddenly there's a bottleneck that's going straight into my attacking units. Are you going to double back? Are you going to loop around? What are you going to do? You've got a castle that's trying to escape. Well, here's terrain that's going to force you to break up that castle because you're not going to be able to stay together or you're not going to be able to stay together and move quick enough. Yeah. Interesting. And and then in addition to all this, there's some stratagems for the mission. So you've got three attacker stratagems and three defender stratagems. So uh, the first one for the attacker is outriders. So for two CP, uh, use this stratagem during deployment. Pick a unit from your army, remove it from the battlefield, and set it up wholly within 12 inches of any table edge and more than 9 from any models. You can only use stratagem once per battle. But basically, that means you could take a unit and place it at the leading edge of the battlefield. Yeah. So they can be ahead of the defender. So actually, you've got something the defender's trying to get past. Imagine I set up my Gorkonaut there. Yeah, like there's speed bumps and then there's... Houses in the middle of the road. <laughs> yeah. And even if you don't plan on engaging it, it's still going to be blasting you as you go past. So it's certainly going to be engaging you. Yeah. So that's um, a really interesting strategy to use for the attacker. You've also got... Um, actually, this next one is available to both the attacker and defender, and it's identical. 1CP, Desperate Acceleration. Use this strategy at the start of your movement phase. Pick a unit from your army and roll a d6. 
add the result to, the, uh, to that unit's movement characteristic until the end of the phase. However, at the end of the phase, that unit suffers one mortal wound. So it's basically like a double advance, because yeah. that isn't an advance rule, that's just adding d6 to your movement stat. So you can do that without advancing, so then you could shoot and act normally. Or you could do that in addition to advancing, so your unit could move its movement plus 2d6. So if you've got key Spicy things, fast. Yeah, if you've got key things that you want to get out of the way, one CP, get a, a free D6 extra inches at the cost of one mortal wound. Um, the attacker also has the last ditch ram uh, stratagem for two CP. Use a stratagem in your charge phase. Pick a vehicle unit from your army. You can reroll charge rolls for that unit until the end of the phase. In addition, if that unit finishes the charge move, this phase, pick an enemy unit, roll an inch, roll d6. On a 2+, plus, the enemy units of a steep remote wounds. Which... That's a point, actually. With um, Obviously, with the guys trying to get off the board, they're not going to want to charge, but at the same time, if that gets them 10, 11, 12 inches further up the board towards the edge that they need, sometimes it's going to be worth doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it makes me laugh that this is basically the uh, the ramming speed strat for orcs. <laughs> so, like, if you're playing as an orc player, you've actually got basically like two ramming actions you could make per action <laughs> per turn with your army which i think is hilarious for this scenario yeah um then the defender has uh, so they've got the desperate acceleration stratagem as well but they've also got two others they've got one cp for a mine use the stratagem at the start of your movement phase place a token within one inch of a vehicle from your army to represent the mine if a unit finishes a move in one inch of the mine roll d6 on two plus it detonates and the unit suffers d6 mortal wounds on the one the mine was a dodge removing from play. And then at the start of each battle round, it moves six inches towards the western battlefield edge like terrain and um, models. So any vehicle, one CP a turn, the defender can just be dropping mines behind them as they're trying to escape, which I think is really cool. Awesome. And then the last thing is a free CP strat for smokescreen. Use a stratagem at the start of the attacker's shooting phase. Subtract one from hit pulls for attacks at target units from your army until the end of the phase. You can only use a stratagem once per battle. So basically, army-wide minus one to be hit for a turn, free CP. Yep. So if that's a key turn, probably you're looking at either like turn one or like turn five, you know, like yeah. early game. Or at the very start, the very end. Yeah. Just making sure you're keeping that 50% of your army alive with your smoke screen. And one of the reasons why I think transports is a good idea for the defender in this scenario is because you can actually put a good number of points or power level in the passengers. So your yeah. opponent can spend time trying to wreck your rhinos or your um, chimeras or whatever, but actually that's only netting them like 70 points or whatever. When the juicy things is actually the, like the commanders or the veterans or whatever it was that was in it. But the yeah, enemy the important ones inside. Yeah, and the enemy starts to destroy them. So what I can see happening is the defender having like some transport vehicles full of infantry that for the first turn or two, maybe those transports get them, you know, 20, 20 plus inches up the board. But after that, their vehicle gets wrecked and they have to make a decision. Do they keep trying to leg it up the board and basically profit a couple of inches every turn? maybe make advance moves to stay ahead of the rolling terrain? Or do they just hunker down <laughs> in a terrain piece, except that they're inevitably going to be swarmed by the attackers and sort of like fight to the last man as a squad and see what they can take out on the way in order to How buy time heroic. for the other defenders? 
Yeah. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And that's it. That's the scenario. So that's all there is. It's basically attacker, defender, attacker is chasing the defender and the board and all the units keeps rolling back six inches a turn. And the defender's entire aim is just to not die, like just survive. And the random battle length is cool because you don't know when it is you're going to get away or when relief forces are going to show up or you've reached, you know, your home lines or whatever. But you're dropping mines, you're accelerating at silly speeds, you're popping smoke screens all the while. The attackers trying to outflank you, they're deploying um, outriders, they're ramming into you with their vehicles, they're placing terrain in your way. But ultimately, all this is played just with two standard armies and standard terrain that's just not secured to your tabletop. And yet you can have a really cool and unique game 40k user scenario. And it's You're going to bring slightly different forces and you're definitely going to play in a slightly different way to anything you would normally do. I might have a chat with my brother about maybe including this in our scenario for the campaign. Obviously, depending on how the story that folds out, but I think there's certainly it can certainly be applied to any narrative or setting that you want to do. I mean, I think there's like some armies in particular that would play really well with it. You know, so if you've got things like White Scars and then like Saiham Eldar, you can have those two fast-moving like narrative armies that actually feel like one is chasing the other. They yeah. Feel the bo- a six-by-four-foot table is not large enough for those two armies to run around, but suddenly if you're doing a six-by-four rolling table of terrain, they get a bit more of a playing space. Yeah, yeah. The the scenarios you could do, you could have um, Eldar versus Dark Eldar or Harle- Harlequins running away from anything. I think that would be really, really fun. But then, like, I think it'd be quite fun. Say, if you played, uh, say, like, Guard, who are primarily infantry, being chased by Tyranids that are primarily infantry, because. Oh, that sounds Tyr- wicked. Just drop yeah. random Carnifexes at the other end of the table and then go, oh, swerve! Yeah, because, like, I think a lot of, like, the Tyranid infantry would be, like, movement seven or something. You know, sort of movement enough that they're going to be making their way up the board. Yeah. They're going to feel like they are outpacing the guardsmen, but the guardsmen are almost not really going anywhere unless they're advancing. Like, they're frantically trying to avoid the oncoming swarm. I think if you if you pick the the armies and the army lists with the scenario in mind, you can create some really really cool games with this scenario. Yeah, sounds mint. I think it's awesome, and uh, that is that's certainly a, a recommendation. So yeah, let us know how any of your running battles go. I'd love to hear about some. So if anyone's got any experiences playing it, or perhaps if thought they might go give it a try now then let us know either drop in on the facebook group give us some lovely pics from the game maybe send us an email about your experiences love to hear from you um anything else from you chris on the running battle or do you think that's about everything um no i'm just again what would i do to this mission or what would i play with this mission i might try and play it and then do a recap on it next time i'm on Mm. 
No, I mean, it looks mega. I think that's just a mission before you even add in other elements. Like, I think this would be a really fun mission to play with that favourite battle zone of buying the, um, like the lava field, the geothermal eruption. If you had yeah. the lava field being played on one of the long table edges, yes, it rules out that table edge as being a reinforcement edge for the attacker, unless they're playing like Tau or um, uh, Eldar or something where their reinforcements could all fly so they could come in over the lava. But um, could you imagine this idea of, say, like white scars chasing down um, Saiham bikers as they're running alongside like uh, a, a lava a fissure in like a lava planet or whatever. So yeah. you're actually running alongside this lava field and it's slowly encroaching on the board. So you kind of been like bottlenecked in as you're trying to run the length of the board, but also slowly moving in on the short length of the board to avoid the lava field. Like I yeah. think that'd be a, a fun addition, like a fun battle zone for this mission. Yeah, and then you can, um, if you advance, roll a dice on a six or a one, you take these three bottle wounds as lava splashes you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And that'd be cool. Yeah, any kind of env- environmental rules to games, I think, are great. And if you apply it to a frantic scenario like this, it could be hilarious. Awesome. I would well, like to say, though, I have a line washed my falchion. Awesome. I am a happy boy. It is ready to be transferred up, glued up, and weathered heavily tomorrow. Well, my go-kart is on the way, but uh, he's probably going to be tomorrow before he's finished on this stage. But we'll see. We've still got news and new releases. We need to get a bit more paint on him. So I think we will jump over there now. So we will be back in a minute, guys. Do you enjoy awesome narrative 40k games as much as we do? Do you wish there was more narrative play content online you could enjoy? Narrative Wargamer aims to be more than just a podcast. Our goal is to become a wider platform for narrative 40k content creation. Right now we are just starting out, but you can already find 40k articles and gaming posts on our website at narrativewargamer.wordpress.com. We also aim to develop the Narrative Wargamer YouTube channel with narrative battle reports, custom missions, expanded gameplay rules and much more. If you would like to see awesome content like this, then please support the show via the Narrative Wargamer Patreon page. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and expand our range of future content. You can support the show from as little as $2 a month and it really is the best way to show us you are enjoying our work and are excited to see more. With your support, Narrative Wargamer can become the number one provider of narrative player content from the Grim Dark. And we're back for news and new releases. So, there has been some very interesting news from the community page in the last day or two. Um, so, I think we'll, we'll just talk about those first, really, because... Um, I mean, first of all, the first new Space Marine characters for the Salamanders and the Imperial Fists have been spoiled mm. literally yesterday, um, which is really cool because it's basically the new Primaris special characters for their upcoming supplements that will no doubt be available in a couple of weeks. I think the spoiler said in October. Yes, um, so next week, if not week after. Yeah. And they look really cool. Basically. I love the Salamander one. I'm I'm interested in what's happened to Lysander and Vulcan Hestan, but I'm always for new characters. 
Well, yeah, that's the thing. So, like, when I first saw them, I assumed, like, oh, this will be Heston and Lysander, you know, cool. But it's not. It's not them. It's actually the Imperial Fist is called Tor Garadon. Tor Garadon the Lad. Yeah. <laughs> Who, presumably bad looks, it must be captain of the third company, I'm guessing. Um, yes. And then the Salamander fella is Adrax Agatone, who I have no idea of his rank, but he looks like a fancy Space Marine Primaris captain. And he has a uh, somewhat blacksmith's fund armour, rather traditional square-headed one. Yes. And a cool-looking flamer pistol. I think it's a 12-inch flamer pistol as well, isn't it? I have no idea. No one idea that all the boys want. <laughs> It looks kind of like the one off the um, aggressors, like the Flamestorm Gauntlet, but rather than yeah. the Gauntlet, it's just like a handheld with a grip. Looks yeah, really cool. and a pistol so you can shoot it in combat, which, you know, always yeah. nice. But the, the fact that it's not actually Heston and Lysander, I was genuinely really surprised at, because like the other ones, the other supplements, it has been the previously known characters. Like, we've seen Tiggy. Trike, and- Marnaeus... Uh, the Iron Hands one's a new dude, isn't it? Well, yeah, he's a new dude entirely. Like, they never had one, but like the White Scars, Kasaro Khan was a That was it, Kasaro Khan, that was the other one I was trying to think of. Um, Tiggy was obviously a previous Ultraman character. Uh, Shrike, previous character. They'd like characters we've known from the past who physically had models and rules that have passed the Rubicon Primaris and become a Primaris Marine. So it was kind yeah. of assumed that Vulcan Heston and Lysander were going to do the same thing. Actually, no. We've got entirely new characters, which I did not see them doing. That was a big surprise. Um, so I wonder whether or not, like, Lysander and Heston will even be in the supplements. We'll have to wait for the mm. books. And the fact that it doesn't necessarily look like they will be makes me less convinced that we're going to see Sons of Dawn as a book. We're actually going to see... Imperial Fists, so I'm wondering whether or not Pedro Cantor, Halbrecht, and uh, Grimaldis might be uh, relegated to a White Dwarf or PDF downloads, because we might... Yeah, we had the Crimson Fist one in White Dwarf recently, didn't we? We did, but it's kind of been rolled into the new Marine Codex now. I don't think there's anything explicitly in there that they don't have in the core Marine book now anyway. Their chapter tactics in there, their stratagems are in there. Um, yeah. And Pedro wasn't in the White Dwarf as a data sheet, I don't think, because he had his own data sheet at the time. So we'll see. But in either case, the the Imperial Fist character actually has a, a fist now. <laughs> he actually has a power Hooray! fist and Lysander having his Thunder Hammer, which I thought, surely if anyone was going to have a power fist weapon, it would be the Imperial Fist character. So the, I think it's like the... Hand of Dominance or something. But basically, it, it's like... Hand a, of Defiance... Under Defiance. Cool. It's basically yes. like a super power fist with like knuckle dusters on it, isn't it? Yeah. You can see like it's like um, a pneumatic punching fist. It looks really cool. Yeah. Just got these little jackhammer knuckles on it that just go back and forth. Yeah. And then they he's give got... me extra punchy power. And then he's got a grav gun on his shoulder, which is cool. Yep. And it's funny, but the Tech Marine from the Iron Hands and um, this tall Garadon guy. Or yep. as I, I like to call him, Primaris Captain Chip Hazard. Yes, he's got the strong chin and the flat haircut of Chip Hazard. <laughs> Definitely. I, it's interesting to see that they're both in Gravis 
Mark armor, but they've also got like new features on the armor we've not seen before. So obviously the Iron Hand has got like a full server harness on his, so he's got like you know tech marine stuff on his gravis armor. But even yeah. the Imperial Fist, he's just a captain, but he's got like a shoulder mounted what is effectively rifle weapon, you know. Yeah. It's not just like a pistol or something, it's it's a grav gun. <laughs> um so that opens up some interesting options in the future, I think, you know. That it's almost kinda like the saying we can pretty much do whatever we want with Gravis Armor. If there's something we think would look cool on it, then we can put it on it. Not that it means that there's gonna necessarily be straight up like weapon options for it, but it might be that any kind of special character they want to do in the future with it could have I would like to see if I could take anything from 7th edition and put it into 8th edition, I would like to see more customization of unnamed characters. So I think the fact they're doing all these little tidbits on these characters and making them their own really nice, unique, kind of spicy characters. Yeah, more of it. Well, I mean, I think you're going to get more customization on the non-unique characters from things like the supplements. Like, yeah. when you look at the options available now to say, like, a Raven Guard librarian, like, you've got what three laws they can pick from because they've got the like universal space marine law they've got the um like phobos law and they've got the raven guard law yeah then you've yeah i got... suppose they are just gradually introducing it aren't they yeah then you've got like lots of relics because again if you're if you're looking into the supplements that librarian can take the standard relics from the core book he can take the raven guard unique relics and he can take the special issue war gear relics and within those yeah. even though the special issue war gear is relatively universal things like the corvus round and stuff and the um, shard of istaban there are a few special issue gears that are unique to the raven guard so when you're looking at a choice of three powers a choice of three sets of relics two choices of warlord traits because again you could go raven guard or core space marines like this, they are adding surprising layers now to, um, like the character creation. Now, my concern is that this is going to be a thing that only the Space Marines get. Yeah. So, in additions past, we've had Codex Blood Angels, we've had Codex Space Wolves. You know, we've even had Chapter Tactics and um, Combat Doctrines and stuff that were unique to chapters in years previous. What we haven't had in years previous was Craftworld, Ulfway, Craftworld, um, Saiham, Death Skull, Snake Bites, yeah. you know, um, like uh, Farsight Enclaves, Tau, Borkan, whatever. Like the other races have kind of caught up in 8th edition where the factions within that race have become more defined. Yeah. But almost only on par as much as the difference between a Dark Angel and a Blood Angel has been for the past 10, 20 years. So I'm worried that going this deep on supplements now, going unique psychic lore, unique relics, stuff like that, I'm worried that yeah. that's not going to roll over to things like Death Skulls, Saiham, Farsight, whatever, you know. Yeah, because... it depends on how they do it because if they you know ideally if they do it for one army like space Marines, they'll do it for all the armies but i don't know how many people would go out and buy a gene stealer cult supplement for sons of your manganda <laughs> yeah exactly so it's so yeah. it's one of those that's for them as a business and as a company to manage but for us as customers and consumers to cry high heck about when we mm. don't get what we want 
like in a way I can see how it's easy enough to create a set of unique relics for Iron Hands as unique psychic law for Iron Hands you know I find it less obvious how you would create a unique psychic law for each of the orc clans like yeah. what, what does a goth psychic law look like what does a death skull psychic law look like do you know what i mean um i would love to see it don't get me wrong i think it's i think it's entirely doable i think it would be great but i don't think i'm gonna see it happen yet yeah like it <laughs> it's wonderful and great that we've now got codex supplement raven guard codex supplement iron hands complete with special character and so on I just don't quite yet see Codex Supplement Death Skulls being a thing. Not yet. No, I would love it to be, but I, I just have this feeling that this supplement range is going to be a marine thing. Like I can see them stretching to doing the Traitor Legions. So I could see yeah. them going, here's Codex Supplement Alpha Legion, here's Codex Supplement Night Lords. I don't necessarily see them doing... Codex supplement, red corsairs, all the purged, all the flawless. Yeah, groups. I'd like. I think guard regiments could do with that little bit of love. Yeah, I guess Just that's, one, that's what al- I could see. Almost all of them don't have models now. Yeah, because imagine I'm going like, here's supplement Valhallans, and then yeah. all, all the artwork in the book is like the Valhallan models from like the late eighties. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And people are like, huh? They look <laughs> old. Yeah, they've almost kind of written themselves into a corner now, haven't they? Like, if they were going to do supplements for the guard regiments, they would have to release models for each of the ones they did supplements for. Exactly. Like, and it comes down, obviously, with us seeing version 2 codices. So we've had version 2 Chaos, we've got version 2 Space Marine out now. Like, it's safe to say that they'll probably do that for most of them, but then what new stuff are they going to add in? Are they going to do supplements? Are they not going to do supplements? What are they going to do? Because like if they did it for orcs, that's fine. You just paint the armor plates on your orcs different colors. They could do it for sisters yeah. of battle and do all the different like um, uh, what they called orders. Are they orders? Yeah, I think it's orders. Yeah, yeah. Like because they could just go here's all the sister battle models. These ones have purple robes. These ones have red robes. Stuff like that. But to say yeah. here's all the guard regiments, I think it would be difficult for them to go. Here's Mordians. They're just Cadians with blue armor. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't like, think people would be happy with that. No, exactly. Like, realistically, at the moment, you could obviously you've got Cadians and Catchans. You could. They could get away probably with recasting. Um, the Vostrians and the Armageddon Steel Legion. I guess like they would probably still be feasible today. Like if they reintroduce the range if they could magically just take the existing models that were metal and now make them as plastic like even yeah. if they were just one piece kits you like one piece plastic models fine yeah they're, they're I, still amazing models i still love the um the steel legion they're still yeah, great but i don't think they could get away with that with the valhallans or the mordians um or i feel like there's another one on the tip of my tongue but i can't for Stroyans, the Talon, yeah, the Talon. Yeah, I don't think they, they could do with the Talon kids either. But, you know, like, maybe. Yeah, I There's mean, we're getting, plastic aspect, we're getting plastic aspect warriors, aren't we? So, And that leads us on to the next release, I believe. Yes, we are. So the the next sort of thing that's been spoiled from the Psychic Awakening 
is the fact we're going to be getting a new plastic incubi kit for the Dark Elder. So we've seen the new Clavix, I think he's called. It's like the uh, effectively Exarch of the Incubi. Yeah. Um, he looks cool, even though I've he's already seen plenty of images of him photoshopped into the canoe. <laughs> yes. I'd love to, well, I wouldn't like to know, but it always interests me how people's minds work when they see something and go, huh, look at him. He'd be funny in a canoe. <laughs> yeah. They'd be like, hmm, uh, how does your brain work? But, like, the fact that we're going to be getting plastic incubi at the same time as plastic howling banshees and it seems like they're setting themselves up for a battle box that's meant to be i mean meant to be aldari versus uh Jukari, but yep. it seems like it's focusing particularly on the incubi versus the howling banshees because it seems like in addition to the aspect kits we're actually going to be getting potentially new uh, phoenix lords so we're potentially going to be looking at a new um Jinzar. Jinzar and... Oh and God Almighty. Drazhar. Drazhar, that's the one. Yeah, or um, Arhar, or however you pronounce it, if, if if he is to be confirmed as the Dark Phoenix, which, you know, basically more or less is. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, like, new Drazhar model, yes please, I would love to see that. And seeing a battle box that puts me more in mind of the Wake the... Not Wake the Dead... Um, the one from a good couple of years ago now with Death Watch with young Cassius versus the... Overkill. Um, Overkill, is that the one, yes. The, the first incar- incarnation of the Gene Stealer cult. No, not that one. Slightly different one. It's the one where he's fighting... It's Cassius and the Death Watch versus Craftworld Ulfway, and that's when they introduced the new Plastic Eldrad. There were two Death Watch boxes. Oh, God! It was Artemis, not Cassius. Yes, there was one led by Artemis that was versus the Gene Stealer cult, and there was, was one that, that was led called? by young Cassius versus Capital Wolfway, because it was yeah. the introduction of the Yanari in the storyline, because um, Eldrad was trying to bring about the birth of Yanid, and Cassius yeah. prevented it or whatever. But anyway, basically. Um, because that was the last box set that kind of featured like two core special characters in the battle yeah. box. So it was Cassius and Eldrad. So I think they're looking to... It looks like we might be getting a battle box similar to that, where it's going to be um, Jin Zah yeah, and Drezzar. And then their aspects fighting with them. Which is going to be really cool. And hopefully... Uh, well, I mean, they've said that we're going to be seeing one of the new sculpts next Monday. Um, but we don't know which one yet. But we will have to wait and see. But yeah, Plastic Aspect Warriors on the horizon. I'm not going to discount Plastic Valhallans, which will make me walk into my games workshop, mm. launch my wallet at the manager there. Well, I'm wondering good whether times or not, will occur. this new box set, which presumably is probably going to be called Phoenix Rising, and I guess the, the clever part about that naming is that the idea is it's two Phoenix Lords fighting, so yep. it could be either one of them is rising, because they're the ones... It's a play on words. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering whether or not this supposed battle box might be to Soul Wars, not to Soul Wars, might be to Psychic Awakening what Soul Wars was to um, Malign Portents. Yes, so like the next progression in the narrative. And in the edition. Like, Ooh, while, so like 8.5. Yeah, like 8.5. Whilst I don't think we're going to get, you know, a hard reset and a shift to officially ninth, but yep. like... It could basically be the unofficial 
official next step of the edition where it's kind of like this is the Soul Wars box of 8th edition 40k yeah it's the Phoenix Rising box this marks the start of the new transition of everything else we're going to be doing moving forwards which will be which because it's going to be a big release because it's going to be presumably Psychic Awakening book one yes probably two maybe three part series yeah there's going to be the Phoenix Rising battle box or whatever it might be. And then presumably probably some other standalone kits because I don't know how long they might remain exclusive. It'd be like, here's your new Howling Banshee kit. Here's your Incubi kit. But you can only get them in the Dark Phoenix box. As in that being said, Phoenix Rising box. Yeah, but it's like the Shadow Spear box and how the Chaos bits are no longer available because they're not anywhere else. Yeah, like, but we'll see. Like, either case, I'm very excited for it, and it's nice yes. to see. It's nice to see. Not only is it Xenos that's getting some attention, but it's Xenos that isn't even like paired up against Imperium. Do you know what I mean? Like, is Xenos yeah. like Xenos? Like, we said, Gene Steeler Cult versus Death Watch, Eldar like Ulfway versus Death Watch. We've had um, Wake the Dead was the most recent one I think that was. Craft Lord Saiham versus Ultramarines. Yep. Shortly followed by Shadow Spear, which was Chaos versus Ultramarines. Yeah, and there is a theme. Two, two there, from, there is a yeah. sway. Two from Claw, Space uh, Souls versus Genesis. But like, it's nice to see two factions and neither of them being Imperial. Yes. So it's going to be cool. So it yeah. is going to be awesome. I'm excited for the campaign stuff as well. They're saying how it's going to be a galactic-wide campaign. Because I yeah. want to know what's happening everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that on the website they put up with the little um, live map of where the events are happening, although they've not explicitly said it yet, the area that looks to be active currently in the first stage of the Psychic Awakening, it's spread across the two sides of the rift, so it's actually on both the um, Sang... not Sangotera, the... Um, Imperium Nihilus and Imperium Primus, I think it is technically the, like, yeah. the enlightened side. It's spread across both, so it's not actually just on one side or the other. And the point at which it like crosses the Maledictum is actually where the second stable war uh, route currently is. So like yep. Vigilus 2.0. It's not been directly mentioned or even like name-dropped the planets yet, but it has been mentioned that Vigilus was one of very few but multiple stable warp rifts. And it seems like a big coincidence that the first stage of the Psychic Awakening is crossing the same part of the galactic map where the second main stable route for the Maledictum is known to be. Yes. So I think that we might end up getting some key planets in there that's going to be like the setting of the Phoenix Rising. Who knows? But... It's going to be very cool, and I'm looking forward to all the, uh, the cool new stuff, both law and models and games, and hopefully lots of cool new rules. Yes, lots of cool narrative scenarios for us to play and ogle over. Exactly. Um, and I think that's all about everything in user releases, really. like You can now get your hands on the Raven Guard supplement and the Iron Hand supplement. There's lots of cool stuff in there. It's nice to see the Raven Hands. Uh, Raven Hands? <laughs> no. The Raven Hands successor chapter <laughs> confirmed. Um, it's nice to see the Iron Hands actually getting some attention. But anyway, 
Um, there's plenty of other podcasts that have covered like the contents of those supplements and the new stuff. And unfortunately, you know, we are definitely not big enough yet to be getting uh, review copies from GW. So there's no real point trying to compete to the other shows and channels that do. So for now, we'll, we'll just stick to um, the stuff that excites us really in the news. But I think that's about everything for now. I'm certainly looking forward to the reveal next Monday and then probably the Monday after that. And then probably some news coming up a week or two from then about what the actual purchasable things are going to be in the releases. So Yeah, who knows where we'll be in two weeks' time. Awesome. Uh, so, I will just quickly jump us over to the community spotlight. I don't know if there's any particular channels or content creators or any supporters of the hobby out there that you want to mention or bring up this this week? Uh, check out the Edge of Empire guys if you like your Horace Heresy games. Uh, as I said at the start, I'm playing at their Company of Legends event. So that's going to be good. It's fully booked, sadly, but they do do two events a year, I believe. So definitely check out 2020. And I am also hoping to do an appearance on the 30k channel as well for other Horace Heresy players out there. But uh, yeah, see what happens there. Nice. Um, mine is, uh, I mentioned them once before, very briefly, the uh, the Two Peas podcast. But um, I want to mention them again because they've recently basically just committed to upping their content and uh, what they're putting out there. So they've recently just started doing some early YouTube video stuff now. So they're sort of branching out from the podcast itself. Um, and they have recently just expanded the team. So originally just the two of them, but I think they've got about four or five people now that are going to be doing all kinds of content across um, their website, their podcast, their YouTube channel. So they're, they're going to be one to watch because uh, they're a bunch of really cool guys and uh, they've actually given us a shout out before. So that was great from them. Um, but yeah, you should definitely go check them out. Say that, uh, they've actually got a really nice sort of like hobby section and stuff. Like they've, they've kind of got that feel of just guys that enjoy the hobby and enjoy talking about it. You know, just like talking about everything that they do. And they're one of these kind of like um, broad podcasts that they, they sort of talk about all the different game systems they play. Like um, they play Age of Sigma and 40k and in the last episode they're talking about branching into Aeronautica and all sorts. So, uh, awesome. Yeah. I'll have to uh, check them out. They're on Spotify. Uh, no, I don't actually think they are on Spotify. I know they're on Podbean. They're I've got all... Podbean. I'll yeah. check them out on there then. Yeah, their podcast is also actually on YouTube as well. So if you just go find their podcast, their YouTube channel, you can find all the stuff they do on there. But that's the uh, the Two Peas podcast. Awesome. Cool. Um, I think that is everything from us tonight. So I think just last little bits of admin on the way out. Um, so if you have made it this far and you've been enjoying the show and you are not already a member of the Facebook group, what are you doing? Go join it now, because clearly you enjoy the content. And if you enjoy hearing us talk about all the stuff we do, then you'd love seeing all the stuff we do as well. So definitely go check out uh, Narrative Wargamer over on Facebook. If you want to see this Gorkonaut when it is finished by the end of the week, then go find me over on Twitter at Narrative40k or over on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. 
Do it. I'm uploading a picture of my falchion as we speak, and you want to have a look at this. Perfect. I want to see it. Make sure there's a marine next to it. It's only for scale, because I did not yes. realise how big that thing is. Um, and then, finally, like I say, we've recently just introduced our first Patreon rewards. So if you do go find us on Patreon and you do pledge to support us for anything from $2 a month, one would be eternally grateful and it'll help us produce the show and maybe we can get around to actually recording some of these fancy battles that we talk about for YouTube one day. Uh, but if not, in the meantime, just go check us out. You'll get access to our Discord server, um, our Facebook group chat. I think I have a direct line to all of us here at Narrative Wargamer and you can hassle us about all our hobby stuff and tell us all your wonderful ideas and just really get involved in the community. So, yeah. Do it. It's Do good that. for you. Yeah, you won't regret it. Honest, you'll enjoy it. Um, so, guys, uh, thanks again, Chris, for coming and joining me tonight. No, hey, dude, thank you very much for having me. Good times were had again. Uh, as always, and uh, I'll look forward to no doubt having you probably on the next show. And maybe we might even be able to get Jake, aka uh, Katie and Shock, back on with us again in the near future. But No worries, dude. Sounds good to me. As always, guys, until next time, discover more ways to play.